Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Nathan. Thanks, everybody. Um, happy Father's Day is, has already been said to all our wonderful dads and grandpas and brothers and who so lovingly share the heart of God to all of us, to your kids, to your spouses, to your grandkids, and to all of us in, the, in this family of God. I'm so grateful. I've been overwhelmed with gratitude this week, just thinking about our guys and just absolutely world-class uh, men in our church who love and serve so humbly and faithfully. So really appreciate you. And I'm also mindful that as with Mother's Day, this there can be pain with this day um, because of fathers that are absent. My dad has been gone three, this is my third Father's Day uh, since my dad passed. And so I pray for God's comfort and peace to be with all of you, regardless of, of what joy or sorrow or both you may be experiencing today. And also, of course, Happy National Indigenous Peoples Day, which will be tomorrow, June 21st, first day of Sunday uh, of summer to all our Indigenous friends. Of course, I thought, in fact, I was just in the middle of preparing to record this message on Thursday, and I got a text from Monica saying that the events at Lower Post were postponed this weekend. We were to be there. Kathleen and I were already planning to be there today. Uh, for the ceremonies tomorrow, which was the ceremony demolition of the, the residential school. And some remains were found. They weren't sure if they were human. They've since found that they were not human, but they've slowed everything down uh, because they really want to do a thorough search of the area around the residential school, especially in light of the Kamloops discovery a few weeks ago. And so they're hopefully they're hopeful for an August event. We're not sure yet, but we'll keep you all posted on that. So today, I'm live, gratefully acknowledging that I'm on the traditional territory of the Coast Salish people, particularly the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Squamish First Nations people. Grateful uh, to be together with you, and we're going to continue our teaching series on embodiment, seeing the good news through the eyes of John the Beloved. And I actually have a Father's Day message for you today, but we're going to take a bit of the scenic route to get there because it's a really strange passage of scripture. As Nathan said, food's been a really in the theme today, but this the food theme takes a really strange term <laughs> in this passage of scripture today. And uh, we might entitle this passage, there's a whole lot of grumbling going on. And there's conflict. And this grumbling and conflict that we read about in this passage of scripture between Jesus and the Jewish people and the religious leaders was something that probably continued. Remember, John is writing five decades later. So even though he was at a front row seat, he's now reflecting five decades later. And I think this conflict was still happening. And so, yes, there was a conflict in this story, but he's reflecting on something that's been going on right to the end of the, the first century. And to be honest, as we will see today, it probably continues today. So uh, the conflicts that we see occurring in this passage of scripture are very relative for us. And 
the uh, setting, just as, as a reminder for today's discourse, this strange conversation between Jesus and the Jewish people, uh, has two significant events that have just occurred, as we've been saying. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 occurred, and, and then Christ walking on the water. And John sets these events. He says, this was the time of the Passover. So clearly he's using the Exodus story of Israel's liberation from Egypt as a backdrop to these two stories. And the feeding of the 5,000 would have been told in the context of the supernatural provision of manna in the wilderness. And then Christ walking on the water, of course, would have referred to the crossing of the Red Sea. And as in the Exodus narrative, there was a whole lot of grumbling going on. And so we see this grumbling in, in the wilderness uh, being uh, repeated here in this passage and John referring to it very deliberately. So what's going on? What's the nature of the grumbling and why is it so important to John to mention? Well, firstly, remember the, the crowds were so enamored uh, by the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 plus that we talked about a few weeks ago. They were so enamored by this that they try to make Jesus king. Now, that doesn't seem bad. We know Jesus is king. We sang about his kingship a bit this morning. The problem was it was the wrong kingdom. It, we, we, we might even say that it was a kingdom based on the false self. And you've heard me talk about that endlessly, the, the danger of the false self, uh, of finding our identity and in, in, uh, our nationality, our family, or uh, achievement or performance, none of which are bad in themselves, what other people think about us, but that's not our true identity. Our, identi our identity is we're beloved children of God. And so he tells them, these people, that even though they've seen them, and even though they want to make him king, they don't really believe. Well, wait a minute, Jesus. They, they want to make you king. Why are you saying they don't believe? Well, keep in mind, again in review, and Sandra covered this, and Nathan covered this, and Flo has covered this, uh, that believing is such a huge, huge theme in John. It's mentioned, the, the Greek word pisteo is mentioned over a hundred times in the book of John. But it's not believing a doctrinal creed, or saying, I, I believe the Apostles' Creed, or some formula, or that you said a special sinner's prayer. To believe in John is literally to rely on a person, to trust in, to literally rest and relax in Jesus, to rest in his arms, literally. So we're not talking about orthodoxy. We're talking about orthopraxy. I think that should be just a, a subline for anything, any literature of our church, beyond orthodoxy for orthopraxy, because we've got the orthodoxy alive, but orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right beliefs. Orthopraxy is right practice. It's not about saying or believing the right things. That's not what following Jesus is. It's about doing the right things. Remember that parable of the two sons that Jesus told? One said, you know, he told his son, go and work for me in the vineyard. And one son said, yes. But Jesus said, then he didn't go. But then there was another son who said, no, I'm not going. But then he did. Well, one had the right words, but the wrong practice. One had the right practice, even though his words were off. And I think it's good to get both. I think right, right belief does lead to good practice. But, but there's definitely a deference here. 
that Jesus has. Now that may sound like works, but it just means coming to him. What are the works that Jesus is inviting us to do? They're not, we're not talking about a works-based Christianity, but as Flo so beautifully reminded us last Sunday, Jesus has just told them that the way they do God's work is to trust in him. If you get that right, everything else will fall away. In fact, he went so far to say that whoever comes to me, I will never drive away or cast you out. Now, why would Jesus say something like that? Well, because it was happening a lot. And you see it in the book of John. People were being cast out of the synagogue. Remember the blind man in John 9? We're not there yet, but you, if you've read the book before, he got cast out of the synagogue. People who followed Christ were afraid of being cast out of the synagogue. And they were used to seeing people cast out because they sinned, they failed because of their race. They were Gentiles or Samaritans, or they were ceremonially unclean, or because of their gender. And as I said lately, because they believed on Jesus. And to this day, who of us doesn't fear rejection? And yet Jesus' promise to us was so universal. I just love the universality of this text in, in about uh, four or five verses. Eight or nine times he uses the word, everyone who comes to me, everyone who believes in me, all who trust in me, I will lose none who come to me. Wow. And then he totally messes with their theology as with ours too. And he says these words. Everyone who's heard from the Father and learned from him comes to me. As evangelicals, we like to turn that the other way around. We say, well, if you come to Jesus, you'll come to the Father. But Jesus is very clear that people can hear from the Father, hear from God, and be taught with God by God without even yet knowing Jesus and having the right words and theologies and formulas. We saw this with Cornelius in the book of Acts. The angel said, your prayers and alms are known to God, but it led him to Jesus. And, and it, it occurred, I think, with our First Nations people. This is why our, our colonial missions efforts got it so wrong. Because the indigenous cultures, you see the footprints leading to Christ, leading to the creator in their culture before the Europeans ever arrived. So they were offended by his universality of this open invitation that it was no longer ethnically based. And remember, by now, their temple probably had already been destroyed by the time that John wrote this and Jerusalem overrun by the Romans. Secondly, they were offended by his ordinariness. He's just declared not once, but twice, I am the bread of life. And that while they had been fed by God with manna in the wilderness, wilderness they all died but he said he was the living bread sent from heaven that if they ate they'd never die well that's quite a, a claim now keep in mind that they believed that the coming age would be marked by two things number one the resurrection of the body and the return of the manna they believed in that in their rabbinical literature and so they resonated with that part but what they grumbled at was his embodiment was his familiarity, his ordinariness. We know him, his father, his mother, his hometown. Who does he think he is? So why is that so important? Because for us, for us to perceive and understand and embrace that ongoing embodiment of God, we need to understand 
that we can't create too big of a distance between us and Christ. Yes, he's eternal God, the son embodied in human flesh, and we can never be God. I don't want that kind of pressure, but we do bear divinity. We share his destiny as part of the beloved community. And finally, he really pushed them and his disciples. And if we're honest, he pushes us too. When he tells them that not only is he the living bread, but that living bread is his own flesh. And that unless they eat his flesh and drink his blood, they have no life in him, in them. To which we all protest along with them and his own disciples. How can he give us his flesh to eat? And in addition to offending normal human sensibilities, it was really offensive for Jews where the thought of drinking blood was utterly abhorrent to a Torah-observing Jew. So what do we do with this? Well, we need the help of a woman who's a theologian. A theologian. I have never heard a better explanation of this difficult passage than by Julian of Norwich, an English woman who wrote the first English book ever in history, she was a mystic of the 14th century. And I think she wrote the closest thing to understanding this difficult passage, literally and physically. And that is that of a mother, she talks about, who carries and protects the child within her own body while in the womb. Through the umbilical cord, she feeds that child. And then on her breast, she sustains that child from her own body before and after the child is born. A famous obstetrician once said, a newborn baby has only three demands. Warmth in the arms of their mother, food from her breasts, and security in the knowledge of her presence. And there are signs that John points to that Jesus was that. He embodied that. He fed the 5,000. He walked on the water, giving them assurance of his presence, that they were safe in his arms. And he sustains us by his body and blood. And so Julian of Norwich actually calls Christ our mother. And the mother mirrors the child's belovedness. As, we're, as we, as newborns, look into the eyes of our mother, we see our reflected back to us, our own preciousness and delight so that we can know that we are loved and worthy of that love for the rest of our lives and existence. Richard Rohr says, this is why God created babies so cute. You just can't res resist smiling at them, doting over them. That is a gift from God through our mothers. And whether or not we experience that, Jesus is God's mirror to you and to me. He mirrors our belovedness and our delightfulness to God. But the father also appears a lot in this passage, so we can't forget the father. So what's the role of the father in all this? Our mothers delight in, in our belovedness, and we feel that this is natural and normal because we're a part of her, and she's a part of us. We know her smell, her milk, her breast. But after a short period of time, we become aware of someone else walking around the house. And we ask, who's this person, this other person? this strange person, and will he love me too? You expect your mother to love you because she's part of you and you're part of her, but what about this other person? 
he has a choice. And will he choose me? And when he does, when he picks you up and holds you and swings you around and dances with you and giggles with you and plays with you and looks into your eyes, it's like a second dose of mirroring. It's biblically speaking that experience that Paul and many others in the Bible call election or being chosen. It's love chosen. God told Israel, I didn't choose you because you were strong or mighty. I didn't choose you. I sure didn't choose you because you were good. I chose you because I loved you and I delighted in you. And that is the gift of the Father that Jesus is offering right here in John. You see, if you don't believe you're special, it's very difficult to make other people feel special. So dear ones, this is Jesus' invitation to them and to us. Come to me. Come and know your mirrored your belovedness and your delightfulness and your chosenness by the Father. So those of us who've had parents who mirrored this for us have an easier time believing. But of course, many of us didn't receive this. And if we did, it was imperfect. But sometimes God sends other people into our lives too, like the gift of grandparents. The obsessed grandparent that just dotes and delights and sees you. Yay, grandparents. Or that special uncle or aunt or mentor or friend. And regardless, God's invitation is to believe it and receive it and to come to him. Regardless of what your experience has been, good or bad, painful, mixed. He just says, come, believe and receive this good news. And as I've often said, if, it's, if it doesn't seem too good to be true, it's not the good news. This amazing good news where God has given us a new identity, a new story, a new family, where our belovedness is mirrored through embodiment. This embodiment of God through the beloved community that we have of sisters and brothers and fathers and mothers and uncles and aunts and grandpas and grandmas. And we learn and see through each other our own delightfulness. I think that's why it's so important for children to, you know, it says it takes a community to raise a child and we mirror to them their delightfulness. But you know what? They mirror it back, don't they? For example, the love that I receive from my own children and my own grandchildren and the children in our church just overwhelms me. Um, you know, my daughter, I, let me brag about her. She's running a, day, a daycare of 25 children, maybe five, six staff. And this month she was hiring and, and interviewing and she had to get concerts ready at the end of the year. And her life was just so full and overwhelmed. And last Sunday they had me over for a birthday party and, and I found out she had worked eight hours on a cheesecake involved my youngest granddaughters, Hannah and Alina. And I thought, eight hours. <laughs> I felt like David, you know, when he wanted to take the water <laughs> and just pour it on the ground. I, I didn't feel like I wanted to eat that precious cake that was so full of love. I still have a little bit left in my fridge. You can't have. And uh, I was so blessed. And then, you know, uh, I got a knock on the door that same day. And Matt and Evangeline dropped by. And... Uh, I just want to show you, do some bragging here, but uh, uh, Evangeline made this special cross for me here. Can you see that? 
And uh, she, she spent a lot of time working on that. And uh, she, did, she did a card for me here. She made a handmade card. Thanks Evangeline for that. A lot of hard work on that. Wrote some beautiful words. And then uh, another handmade card by Sandra there. And then Sandra gave me a little, little one of these and it says, love belongs to you on the cover. This was hand painted. And every day I get to pour, pull out one of these and I put it in front of the cross and I just remind myself through the day. This one says, you are unique. And there's just, just, I don't know, there's a whole pile of blessings like that. So I just take it out and put it in front of there for the day and just, and, and to me, this is just one tangible way of coming to Christ, of, of Im how embodiment so blesses us. And then I got some poetry here from, from my granddaughters. This is from Alina there. It's a lot of color there. And she wrote a poem. You light up the world by showing your kindness. You are colorful. That was her poem to me. And then a handmade one by Annalise. And another beautifully inscribed one by Hannah. And I'm wearing some more love from Samuel. So let me blow my nose. I'm a little worked up over this. Uh, so so it's, it's true, isn't it? The generations mirror back um, the, the love that, that is mirrored to them. And God's invitation is to come and to receive it. And sometimes it comes through creation. I was sitting on my deck uh, about four or five days ago before we were supposed to go to lower post. And all of a sudden I heard this whirring sound on the deck. And... I looked up and just to my right, like I'm about an arm's length away, was a, a hummingbird. And the hummingbird was just hovering there looking at me. And I just, I just felt, I knew that hummingbirds mean so much to indigenous people. And it's a sign of God's favor and blessing. And I thought it just spoke so powerfully of um, God's delight and favor over my life. But it takes having eyes to see. It takes having ears to hear, and sometimes we need help. And so Jesus, he says, come to me, don't over-spiritualize it. The physical word for when he says eating of me and, and drinking of me is literally the physical word chew. And he's, he, 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 he doesn't want us to over-spiritualize this. He's literally inviting us to feast continually on his love and his delight for us. And perhaps this explains why the central act of worship in the early church was. Was it an altar? Was it musical worship? It wasn't uh, a temple. It was a meal. It says they ate together and with gladness of heart. And I think there was this embodiment of delight that they gave each other when they eat, ate together. And I am so looking forward to being able to do that together with you again soon. So looking forward to that. So dear ones, come, come receive afresh from God, your belovedness, your delightfulness, your chosenness, the universality of it, the, the, the wide open embrace, the ordinariness of, of it, of our humanity, 
the vulnerability of it, our utter dependence. I've read stories of people that had COVID and when they were on the respirators, they literally had to live just concentrating on their very next breath. Just being able to take that next breath just to survive. And it's like that with Jesus. We're more dependent on him than those people were on their respirators for our next breath, for our very life. The umbilical cord of his love and life and his delight in you. They say that John the Beloved sounded like a broken record near the end of his life because he always said he had one message, love one another. And I feel like I'm starting to feel like that. I'm starting to feel like a broken record. But I can just say, can I just say, remember who you are. You are God's beloved. Never, never lose sight of that and stay feasting on that. What I'd like to do to end this is to play a song for you. And I've played this before, but it so speaks of God's delight. And you're going to see it expressed through the, the love of a father and a son as they sing to each other and with each other. And I want you to just observe the delight. And as you do, the, the, between the generations, allow God to mirror back to you your, your own belovedness, your own delightfulness, your own uh, chosenness. Just uh, let this just soak in for you and be loved. I thought sooner or later the lights up above We'll come down in circles and God made a love But I don't know what's right for me I cannot see straight I've been here too long and I don't want to wait for it Fly like a cannonball straight to my soul Tear me to pieces and make me feel whole I'm willing to fight for it and carry this weight But with every step I keep questioning what is true fall on me with open arms fall on me from where you are fall on me with Abracciami, 
So chosen ones, invite you into a moment, a uh, couple minutes of silence, uh, just to reflect on this in the past week, or as long as my memory requires me to, how has God shown me my delightfulness, my belovedness, my chosenness? And if the last week has been rather painful and hard and dark and God has seemed absent, that's okay. Uh, let him let him hug you in the darkness. Let him hold you. Or if you want to just stretch your memory back a little bit farther. And we'll take two minutes of silence and then we'll move into our break. 